welcome to Sacred Justice, a podcast that features discourse rooted in the pursuit of justice as sacred practice. Our weekly discussions reflect on current events, art, media, theology, and how they intersect with the movements for freedom and liberation. We hope that through these conversations, we can foster inclusivity by expanding our learning opportunities. We hope to cultivate digital community beyond the confines of our campus. And we hope to reconnect the church's social and spiritual callings. Join us for the journey. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Sacred Justice Podcast. I am Mia McLean, and I'm here with Benjamin Boswell. Benjamin Boswell, the Reverend Doctor, <laughs> not to be confused with some other people that have a similar name. <laughs> oh, man, don't out me on that. Yes, a lot of folks don't know that yet. That story about the. You know, he contacted me. Have I told you this? I, I got to tell the story now. You put me out here. So okay. when I came to Myers Park, you know, I thought these folks are going to Google me when I come here. So I better Google myself. And I found out that there is a person with the name Ben Boswell who is an erotic fiction writer. And I thought, oh, boy, that's going to be confusing. Uh, ben Boswell, the pastor versus Ben Boswell, the, the erotic fiction writer. And I don't really I mean, some of the titles that he's come up with are very racy. Um, anyway, so. I just told them, tell them to Google Reverend Benjamin and it'll come up or whatever who mm -hmm. I am and they'll be able to find the right person. The real, you know, will the real Ben Boswell please stand <laughs> oh, up? Oh, gosh. And that's me. I am the real Ben Boswell. Um, and so anyway, now that I've been, we've been, I've been kind of telling people this story and I get a lot of laughs at, about kind of telling me, and people keep saying, oh, I know you're moonlighting. That's just you moonlighting. No, actually, this man really exists. He's got a Twitter account. You can follow him. And he friended me recently uh, on Twitter, began following me on Twitter, and then messaged me out of the blue because I liked some of his posts because he's got some good political ideas. I'm not sure about all the erotic fiction, but the political <laughs> ideas I like. And, um, it, you know, and he's a popular writer. So so he, he emailed I, – this. I thought this was so cool, Mia. You're going to love this. He says, hey, I saw you liked a couple of my posts. Um Hope my pen name that I created for myself isn't causing you too much difficulty in your work as a pastor. Meant no harm by it. Uh, like what I see you doing, you know, all the best. So, like, I messaged him and I was like, no, no, no. I mean, it's been confusing at times, but I've made it kind of a joke out of it and made light of it. And people seem to think it's kind of funny. But um, I said, well, where'd you come up with it? Like, how'd you come up with the name? So... He said it is a pen name, and one of his favorite erotic fiction writers was this guy whose last name was Boswell. So he wanted to come up with a, a pen name that honored his favorite erotic fiction writer, and Ben means son of. So he's, ah. he's put Ben Boswell is son of Boswell, and so it's that in Jewish, Ben means son of. Yeah, so, I so never would have thought about that. Isn't that cool? Yeah, Ben Boswell, son of Boswell. So anyway, that it, I thought it was cool to have the story to be able to tell people. But yes, um, folks, if you're going to Google me, please put the Reverend in front, or mm -hmm. you will find some erotic fiction. Some of y'all need erotic fiction in your life, you know. <laughs> so go out there and get because you need pleasure, and there's pleasure activism. You should be reading yeah. that book, and then you probably need some erotic fiction. 
It's yeah. good pool read. Good pool reading. Good, good. I'm, I'm glad that you all are, you both of you are on the same page and you have communicated. <laughs> we're good now. Yeah, we're good. We've reconciled around this. That's, I think that's interesting. You know, one of the things about um, names when you're an actor and you are beginning your career is you have to pick your name. Mm -hmm. um, because once you get invited to join the union, if somebody else, you have to pick your name with joining the union in mind. Basically, I had already chosen that I was going to be a three-name actor. So me and Michelle McClain. So in the union and Actors Equity Association, I am me and Michelle McClain. Nobody else from now on can register as an actor. Oh, wow. So I have a friend. Um, like, for example, if your name is John Smith and my name is John Smith and you register before me, I have to be something else. So this is why you get a lot of actors who are like John B. Smith or John A. Smith or they make up a middle name to put in between because you can't have two of the same people in any of the actors unions. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. So like Vanessa L. Williams and Vanessa A. Williams. Right. One of ah. them is uh, I don't know if you know who they both are. Vanessa. Yes, Vanessa L is like Miss America, Vanessa L. And then Vanessa A is another black woman who's an actress, right? So anyway, it's interesting. I was thinking about that earlier. And, you know, this is why I was telling you, Ben, you have to, you have to buy your domain names you earlier. I bought name. my domain when I was 18. <laughs> Nobody else is going to steal MiaMichelleMcClain.com. I guess I need to go ahead and, and buy my daughter's, uh, her domain name at some I point. I mean, you, you know? could. You, Lucy Joy, whatever you want to, whatever she wants to go She's by. offering anyway. TikTok consulting services right now <laughs> for y'all, basketball coaching. Just get her know. an LLC. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go ahead right now. Get her set up. <laughs> yes. Oh, so man. what are we talking about today for current events? What's coming up for you? Um, mm. Or you want me to go first? I'll go. I'll go. I mean, I, I think you have a better story than I have. You know, it's it's here we are coming up on uh, when this podcast is being recorded, some of the major freedom celebrations. That's what I call them to try to make sense of them. Freedom celebration time in American year calendar, the American calendar. Uh, Pentecost, also freedom celebration, but not American in that calendar. And so we got Juneteenth coming up soon. We got July 4th coming up soon. And while we're celebrating freedom, we have the backdrop, I think, which was intentionally chosen. They've hired a, you know, a stage producer this time. We've got these hearings that are going on for January 6th that are a year and a half late from when they happened. A lot of research has been done. And it really is just stunning to listen to this again and to recognize the lack of accountability that has happened even since that time. And to think through one of my, one of my coaches and mentors was saying to me, you know, accountability is countercultural mm -hmm. in American life. doesn't matter where you try it in politics, in society, in your family, in your church, it is countercultural. And especially when it comes to white people, white people just don't like accountability mm -hmm. and we, we've never been held accountable. So whenever you try to hold us accountable, like, well, what do you mean? I can't storm the Capitol. That's my building. I want to go in there and break windows and do it. What do you mean? I can't call for Pence to be executed and, and uh, run around and crazy with my shirt off and put on horns and stuff and carry a gun wherever I want, beat up police officers uh, and try to overthrow the government. Why can't I do that? You know, I'm white. Free white and 21. I can do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. um, and shifting that uh, is, is just 
it's amazing how entrenched that idea is and how hard it is to shift it. And until we do, we will never have anything that uh, even is a semblance of a multiracial democracy, mm-hmm. which we are not even close to in any way right now. And so I'm watching this, looking at America, wondering when will folks realize how serious this was and what this means and how close we are now to the precipice of living in a fascist state? You know, we are really this close. Holding these folks accountable is like our last hope of of, of preventing a full-on fascist takeover by small militia groups like the Proud Boys who orchestrated this. What's the next thing going to look like? You know, so anyway, I, I find myself continually uh, surprised by how uh, the lack of seriousness that white people are taking, even things like these hearings now, um, and have, have the, that we've taken January 6th or Trump or anything. And so anyway, that's just me uh, dealing with my whiteness, but uh, it's frustration. You're confronting it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, uh, yes. And I feel like people, some people might be viewing these, these hearings as the accountability. And my fear is that it will be political theater and then the result won't be what it actually needs to be to actually be accountability. So my hope is that this does lead to whatever it needs to lead to for those people to be held accountable. My fear is it won't. And it would just have been this whole charade, people's blood pressures rising while they watch this at night. Yeah. Bed. I just, if it's going to be that, then I'm just turning the TV off. Right. But if it's going to actually do something. Right. Well, it does feel a little bit like theater now, especially since they had to hire a they hired a producer to do this one. Now, I have to say that's the first thing that Democrats have done that I thought was actually a, a serious move. Mm-hmm. So, like, I always feel like we're playing. We came to a, a you know a gunfight with you know a bunch of fanoodles. We we can't <laughs> win that way. We can't win that way. So, but I think when you hire a th- you know somebody who's a real producer, now you're now you're saying, oh no, we're going to play with fire here. We're gonna we're gonna create a public story. Yeah. But they're not running the whole. They're not running it on Fox News. So who are you talking to? Right. Who, whose mind are you trying to change? Because they're not even going to run it on the nation, the nation's network that at speaking to conservatives. So who's who are you going to shift the opinion of here? So I, I feel like, and I'll just let you and I do it since we're we seem to be some of the few people who care about accountability, Mia, in this world. Like I'm just going to tell people what I think accountability is. If anyone who attended that at any capacity, and I'm talking Trump all the way down to the lowest proud boy is ever able to run for a political office in America, that was not accountability. Mm-hmm. Everyone who is there should never, ever be allowed to run for political office in America ever again. Mm-hmm. Right? You, you need to put a, a mark on them, whether it's mark them a seditious, seditious, treasonous, whatever that is that bars them. Some of those folks should have their citizenship taken away. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. That's what you that's what you do when you actually care that someone took overtook the government in another country. If they try to overthrow the government and here in the past, when people have tried to overthrow the government, we took their citizenship away. They couldn't vote anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's another way you want to say what's real accountability. Not only should they never be able to run for political mm-hmm. office again, they should never be able to vote again. Mm-hmm. Now, that would be serious. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then just say to everybody, if you do that kind of stuff, you won't be able to vote ever again. You know, but. I don't, you know, I will not, that ain't going to happen. And that's interesting. And bring this accountability thing brings up some stuff that I think we have experienced over the past couple of weeks 
with people. <laughs> and, you know, it seems really harsh, but how does change happen? How do you, I mean, we, I feel like, you know, many people play this like little game. We're just going to, you know, slap you on the wrist and, and, you know, you can apologize. That's not what this is anymore. Like this is really like people died on January 6th, 2021 yes, because died. of that foolishness, even if it was one person, but it was like four or five. I can't remember, but. Well, I know, think it was a total of possible. Some people say nine deaths were linked to it because oh. people committed suicide later who oh. were there. Okay. Well, I, that's how I calculate it, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 But I mean, even if it was one person, yeah. One person's life was gone because of that foolishness. And that should, where is the accountability for that? So, right. Or the trauma, the emotional trauma that yeah. some of those police officers and other people, um, when the woman described how she was literally, the woman, female police officer described how she was literally slipping and falling in other people's blood. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not an experience that she's getting over without therapy. Yeah. Right. And so that that's sort of the thing that we sometimes forget. There's an emotional toil, something that we might mm -hmm. think was innocent or harmful, harmless or uh, done with pure intentions that turned out differently, it can still have such the kind of emotional turmoil on a person's life that they're going to have to do years and years of therapy. And you and I both know therapy is not cheap. So who's paying that therapy bill? That's right. You know, it this should be the person that caused it. This country's to pay my therapy. There's the reparations for that, right? So anyway, this is we're getting close to Juneteenth. Pay your reparations, folks. Yes, my cash app is money sign Mia M. McLean. I have not seen it yet. I'm gonna send you some. Put I mean, it up on is, Twitter. I'll send you, you some. Don't, you don't have to send me anything. I'm just you know, putting that out there. I don't care. Um, I just do it for fun, just to see if we can get something going there. <laughs> Um, so my current event is really not really a happy story, but it's interesting as it relates to the topic we'll talk about. Um, so this man named Aaron Hewitt, who lived in Charlotte a, a quite a long time um, and recently had moved to Florida with his wife and they were planning on moving back. He had accepted a job that was bringing him back to Florida. I mean, bringing him back from Florida to Charlotte. They love Charlotte so much. They had friends here, et cetera. Um, he decided um, he's always been an adventurous man um, running marathons and triathlons and all that stuff. Right. Mm. He decided to take five weeks off in between ending his job in Florida and beginning his job in um, Charlotte. And he decided to hike um, through walking through the Camino de Santiago, which is apparently a, a, a pilgrimage type experience, mostly geared towards Catholics. Um, oh, yeah. You can look that up later. Um so he dies on this trip um, and he, he decided to go by himself. He always wants to do this by himself. But of course, his friends and his family say he made friends everywhere he went. So the story is he started getting a little sick and um, he told these new friends that he had just made on this this, you know, pilgrimage that, you know, go without me. And they didn't leave him. And then the next morning they mm. woke up and he bent over to catch his breath and just collapse. And they tried to do CPR and all sorts of things. This man's in his 40s, maybe 45, I think. Um, but anyway, the way his wife is, you know, processing the grief um, based on this article that's actually in the Charlotte Observer is she said, you know, he died surrounded by friends. He made friends everywhere he went. Mm. He had initially wanted to make this a solo journey, but of course he couldn't help himself. And he had all these people who were like within two days of them being together were wow. becoming, you know, really close friends. And he was surrounded by these people when he died. And that's kind of making her grief journey. Um, that's helping her through her grief journey. So I was just thinking, you know, I would love to die doing I love. Oh, yeah. 
That's where um, you want to die. Everybody wants to die. At I home, mean, surrounded by those you love or out on the road with those you love. Listen, I, God can take me sitting at the piano. It, okay. it ain't got to be. <laughs> just I will, that's, that's, If that's how I have to go, you can just take me sitting at the piano. I'll mm. be very happy, God. <laughs> yes. um, but I thought about, you know, it's beautiful. I mean, I think about death often. Um, it's mm. just something I mm-hmm. am interested in. But um, I also think about grief and how people are pushing through their grief, which is related to what we're going to talk about today. So wow. while you, you were on sabbatical and post. Go ahead. What were you saying? Oh, I said we're going to talk about grief today. I said while you were on sabbatical, even an after sabbatical, what are some of the, you know, mm. we've been talking about TV shows and things. What are some of the things that have been coming up for you grief-wise as you listen to music and you're watching mm. television shows? Um, what have you been watching and listening to that relates to the topic of grief and moving through grief? How do we move through grief, which is something that yeah, as a country, we probably will never be able to do because it's just mm. they're just not taking it seriously. But as a collective, as a community, how can we be better at approaching grief and journeying through grief together? Well, before I get there, yeah, I'm gonna I want to dive into that because this is a really important topic, and a bunch of stuff came up for me in sabbatical on grief um, that I want to share with folks for their own journey, and it, maybe it's helpful, maybe it's not. But um, you know, we pick up things, and sometimes they work, and sometimes they don't, and uh, that's what we're trying to offer you here is things that you need maybe help you on your journey. But as I was thinking about journey, the fact that folk this happened on the El Camino uh, or on the Camino was really interesting to me because I've been watching pictures of my friends and Russ and Amy Dean, who are pastors of Park Road Baptist right down the street from us, who are actually walking the Camino right now. So they're in, they're there uh, in Spain and other places walking the Camino and watching their travels. But it's actually really hot and there's hilly, it's hilly and um, who they've met along the way. They brought some folks from their church with them if they've walked this Camino. And um, it's been a really interesting experience to watch them and kind of walk the Camino with them as they do this. Um, but I, I, I was, as you were talking about the experience of this man who passed away, I couldn't help but think about one of our members experiences on the Appalachian trail and having an injury on the Appalachian trail and then having people who had been walking with them on the trail, um, come to their aid and stay with them as they waited for, um, transportation to come to take them away. And that made me start to think about how hiking the Appalachian Trail or walking the Camino as a pilgrimage, these are metaphors of church, which is what, by the way, way back in the day, Jeffrey Chaucer in the great Canterbury Tales recognized that the Canterbury Tales is like a description of all these people who are on this journey together. And some of them are, you just, you know, you would not want to be near them on this journey. Others, you're like, oh, that sounds like a nice person to talk to. Um, and it gives you this vision of basically like church, church on the road, that that the the life is a journey. And on that journey, we have people who are traveling with us. Some of those people are traveling with us are helpful to the journey. Some people make the journey harder. Some people were there more there for them than they're there for us. Right. Mm. Um, and so I was thinking about how the Camino and the Appalachian trail and Canterbury tales are really metaphors for church. Let me add some others in there. Um, I've heard some people describe, um, being in what is called the BTS army. BTS is the biggest band in the world, Korean pop band being in the BTS army, which is their fan base is like being in church, being a part of a church. Mm -hmm. They are just filled with 
love and grace for each other online. They know how to welcome new people. So like if they have these folks who have been BTS fans for 10 years and then all these new people come every time they release an album, every time they do something big and they welcome them with open arms. They don't say, well, you should have been here. You know, if you only you were here, well, this is how you actually have to be a BTS fan. You can't be a BTS fan like that. You have to be like this. No, they welcome them with open arms. I know some BTS fans that like the new album just dropped and they're like mailing, they're mailing, they bought extra albums that are not cheap and they're mailing them to poor BTS fans so that they can have one of the albums. Mm. Like this is happening, this is happening all over the world right now. And when they show up at concerts, they welcome each other. They actually make little things to give away to each other. Everybody makes their own homemade BTS gear and like mm -hmm. pins and t-shirts and they give it away to everybody on their row. And it's like a community. It becomes a community online. It's a community in person. And they're just filled with love and happiness and support of the band. They even do this cool thing where they say, if you see BTS in the wild, you don't know who they are. They never as fans, true fans don't engage with BTS if they see them out in public. Unless mm. they're for a show as as so as not to intrude into their personal lives, mm. to let them have a personal life. It's amazing. I could go on about this. And I was thinking about this because I was in Atlanta for a concert and it was a it was a Coldplay concert. And as I was in the concert, which was just a straight up dance party for two hours. And we had these LED bracelets that were flashing strobe lights all over. Everybody in the whole place was filled with love for each other, even though there were different political views, people from different places all over the country. We didn't even know each other's political views. There mm -hmm. was different races in there, different classes, socioeconomic backgrounds. Everybody's dancing and singing. Now, it may have been some kind of false sense of community just for a moment. But as I was in that, I thought, man, we this this is like what it feels like for what people want when they think about church. Mm -hmm. Now that may be false and impossible to reconstruct without the budget that Coldplay has. Right. Um, but that's what people are looking for. They want this sense of, um, you know, communal effervescence, right. Shared experience of being uh, enraptured in, in music, in lyrics, in a movement and feeling connected to people through that common purpose and that happens also when you're on the Camino or when you're walking the Appalachian Trail. And and so then you come to church and, you're, and it, <laughs> your experience is, oh, there's that person again. And, mm. you know, there's this program again. And there's there's Ben preaching about just, justice again or whatever he preaches about. You know, it's like, you know, like it's kind of like, oh, man, well, that, I was kind of hoping for Coldplay or BTS or the Camino. And this is what I got instead. So anyway, I'm just I was just thinking about that in terms of like, what is the sense of loss that we have around our religious traditions and what is the vision of what we want? And there are places I think where people are finding community in church, literally church that mm -hmm. are outside of the walls of church. And mm -hmm. so to be a church in that time frame, when people can fly and do the Camino and go to BTS or go to Coldplay, it's challenging. It's challenging yeah. how to, to be in that. Um, yeah. 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 So, so what, you know, when we're thinking about grief and particularly ambiguous loss, right? So mm -hmm. you, you've mentioned read this book that you've been, you know, reading and sitting with all year. But when we think about ambiguous loss, what comes up, right, for us? And why is that so hard for us to process 
the ambiguous law. So the church changes, right? Yes. Or a tradition changes or a tradition gets set aside because it no longer fits the mission or the vision. And that's ambiguous loss or a friend moves away. Ambiguous loss, right? They're not quite, they're not dead, yeah. but it's still, yeah. a, still a challenge or you miss your graduation because of COVID or all the things. Yeah. That you know. Well, so Pauline Boss uh, is the author of this book, two books. One is Ambiguous Loss, which came out in 2000, Learning to Live with Unresolved Grief. And then her book that came out recently during the pandemic, The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in a Time of Pandemic and Change. Both really helpful books. I rec highly recommend the second one, The Myth of Closure, because it's more related to the pandemic as well as the kind of losses that we're all experiencing right now. So Pauline Boss, she... She's the new Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and she has some roots with Kubler-Ross. And everybody knows Kubler-Ross's stages of death and dying. And uh, as as great as those are, they're so outdated now. And there's been so many advancements in the study of grief and loss that we need new language and new ideas. Because first of all, it was never supposed to be linear stages. Even Kubler-Ross did not believe later she believed that her her theory had been utilized to create this kind of process that was actually constrictive of people grieving. And so she wanted to say, no, 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 it's like a cycle of weaving in and out. People don't go from just losing somebody to like um, through the stages automatically in a timely fashion. No, it's like r denial, anger, bargaining, acceptance, back to anger, back to bargaining, then to denial, all in different orders. So it's not a clear path. And anybody who's trying to treat grief like a clear path really doesn't understand grief. They're pushing this stages of grief on people as a way to try to help them make sense of it. Now, it is, if it's helpful to provide meaning, use it to provide meaning to you of where you are to give you a location data, like a GPS of where you are in your grief process. But um, so what what Pauline Boss did is she she was her dissertation was studying um, two different kinds of losses. Um, people who lost um, a loved one in a war and they never got to see the body mm -hmm. and people whose, whose parents, one of their parents became in some way emotionally unavailable to them. Mm. So she studied these kinds of families. And so, so she, these are a lot of POW families, right? Or, or, veteran families, you know, uh, who lost somebody in a war and they never got to see the body, but also people who had a body, but didn't have that emotional connection with the person who was still in the home with them. Mm -hmm. um, and she also studied folks who like lost a parent due to incarceration. Mm -hmm. She had this whole study and what she was trying to figure out was these ambiguous losses. So like you, 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 you don't have the, you, you lost somebody, but you never saw the body again. You have the body, but you still lost somebody, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And for her, these are ambiguous losses because they're not the typical traditional social way in which we process loss, which is somebody dies, you see the body, you know, and then you move and you move through, start moving through the stages. And mm -hmm. so there actually, she found many, many different forms of ambiguous loss, many different kinds of ambiguous loss that are happening. You know, folks who lost someone to COVID, but could never say goodbye, because mm -hmm. they, they couldn't get into the hospital for that matter yeah. or lost, like you said, lost a graduation, not like a person, but that's more ambiguous. Or uh, for my personal experience and one that I think 
for a lot of our church members will relate to is divorce is a, mm-hmm. a form of ambiguous loss. Yeah. The person is still alive, but they're not alive to you in the same way. Yeah. Um, and so <clears throat> we're all living, she says, with the sort of compounding uh, forms of ambiguous loss all the time. And there's and, and so we're 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 constantly grasping for forms of closure. And so she does all this study of how cultures in the past have figured this out. And one of the things she finds that is kind of counterintuitive that I love because it connects with some of the work you and I have done on indigenous uh, ancestry and religion is that people who keep the person alive in some way and or create totems of meaning for the person uh, who they lost or the thing that they lost actually go through the process of grief in a healthier way and can deal with ambiguous loss in a healthier way. So you know how you'd say to somebody, somebody would say, oh, I talked to my, I lost Eddie, and I, I talk to my Eddie every day. I talk to him every night. I, I say a prayer to Eddie every night. I talk to Eddie before I go to bed, and Eddie's mm-hmm. been going 10 years. And we always think, man, that, that person is crazy. They're crazy. Mm-hmm. Turns out they're actually the least crazy yeah. of everyone who's grieving because yeah. they have figured out a way to process grief, which I always tell people that grief is the way we love people and things we've lost after they're gone. Yeah, It's the body and the mind trying to figure out how to love that which we no longer have. And so people who actually keep the loved one or the loved thing alive in some way or totemize it and communicate with it ongoing as a ritual practice, which may be where the birth of religion came from, by the way, Mm -hmm. uh, actually are much healthier. Yeah. So, which I, I agree with. I talk to my people all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just out and be in the car, be like, oh, hey, Leo. Yeah. Um, but even when it's not death. So I've been thinking about you. You made me listen to this Kendrick Lamar album. Oh, um, boy. Don't blame <laughs> me on that. People can say, you, you don't listen to what uh, like I've, I've never been like a, a n- nothing against him. I just never have been into, into him. Yeah. I'm very, I, there are very few rappers that I like follow like I will hear something but I don't follow right so I'm always late listening to people's things but yeah anyway um so I listened to the song called Auntie Diaries um that everybody was talking about on Twitter and stuff you know weeks ago when the album first dropped and there were so many pieces and articles written about the controversial use of uh derogatory language and him dead naming his uh family members who have transitioned um you know gender And so what I was thinking about was the ambiguous loss, not so much related to him. I don't know what his grief, we don't know all the things about his grief, but I was thinking about the ambiguous loss of um, the grieving, the life you thought somebody else was going to have or that you thought you were going to have. So that's kind of loss where it's like, no, the person isn't dead or you're not dead, but you're grieving the life that you thought you were going to have, or you're grieving the life that you thought your child was going to have. Your oh, child parents was... struggle yeah. with that. Yeah. I, mean, I thought my yeah. daughter was going to be getting married in a white dress. And now my daughter has transitioned and mm-hmm. is not a daughter anymore. Mm-hmm. Is a son yeah. you know, or they, and now I don't expect that white dress anymore. So I have had, I have to take the dreams that I created in my own imagination for my child and shift them. Mm-hmm. And that's a loss for me. And that's yeah. very ambiguous. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, I I listened to the song for the first time today and I said, I, I you know, it, it was rough. It was rough, rough to listen to it. But I was trying to follow sort of like Kendrick's, you know, process. And 
listening for the grief in that process, right? Even the way he named some of the people that are in his life. But I've been also thinking about like, and I was thinking about this this past weekend. I have a friend who is like in severe crisis right now. She she doesn't live here. Um, and, um, and she recently came out to me on the phone and she, and then she kind of spiraled that weekend and ended up having to you know, have seek medical treatment and things like that. And um, I was thinking about the grief that she or people like her experience um, and the trauma, particularly I'm looking at this from like a black woman perspective. There's all these expectations about how you are supposed to live your life. And there's a lot of trauma and grief connected to realizing that you are not going to actually live your life the way that other people or even you thought you were going to live your life. And I feel like uh. a lot of... Um, some of those challenges she might be experiencing are connected to that grief, you know, the grief yeah. of being like, I thought I was going to do this and now I'm not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's right. it's traumatic. Like grief is traumatic. Yes. Yes. Deeply traumatic. And we don't take enough time with it. Your society wants us to just keep moving on. Right. Yeah. Be, you are you are a cog in a system of productivity. Yeah. And so the longer you grieve, the less productive you are and less productive you, be, you become. And so therefore you become a, you become out of sync with this culture of, uh, I think the Lego movie always gets me with everything is awesome. Everything is awesome. Oh no, you got your leg chopped off. Everything is awesome. Mm -hmm. Everything is awesome. Get back to work. You know, yeah. you're just a cog in the machine. Who cares? You know, deal with your, your, Oh, you lost all your friends. You're alone. You have no one in the world. Get back to work. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think, we have to avoid this pattern in the church. The church has to become countercultural around grief and say, you grieve as long as you need to grieve. And don't let anybody tell you that your grieving is getting in the way of their life. That's because they want you to get back to normal so that they don't have to deal with your grief anymore. And they don't have to deal with you mm -hmm. because your grief is a reminder to them of the griefs in their lives and the fact that they won't slow down and they won't stop to take the time to deal with their grief either. So you become this witness to the whole world when you're grieving that everybody is just in denial and you are grieving and you're saying, I refuse to be in denial. Sorry, I can't be in denial right now. I'm angry. I'm bargaining. I'm somewhere else. Mm -hmm. ages, I'm in ambiguity. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there with you. And so then it becomes like you and society are not in line when yeah. you're grieving in public and you won't be consoled and you won't just shut up and you won't stop grieving. And I think that's where this third piece I want to offer, you know, we got the Kendrick Lamar albums that is about grief. And he says, you know, I grieve different. Everybody grieves different. You know, that's one of the main themes of the album. And there's a whole lot of grief in there for whole, but, you know, societal, familial, mm -hmm. uh, relational, um, sexual. I mean, just so many, so many different kinds of grief. And then, you know, we've talked about the ambiguous loss book, which I think everybody should read to get a sense of what we're all dealing with. But also this this, this show I've been telling you about that you haven't watched yet. I'm going to do it. It's called Severance. <laughs> and a lot of people don't have not watched this, but those who have is getting very high ratings because it is very well acted. One of the actors from Parks and Rec is the main character. And basically, it's about uh, kind of a dystopian world. Well, it feels a lot like our world, let me say, where it's very productivity heavy. And it's about a man who um, whose wife dies, and he's young. They have no children, and he's grieving very seriously his wife's death. 
And so he decides to uh, engage in what is in a new procedure that has just been invented called severance. Severance is a brain surgery where they sever your work life from your home life, from your personal life. So once you have the severance procedure, it's irreversible. And when you show up at work while you're on the elevator going up to your floor to work, something switches and you forget everything that happens in your personal life. And you are only have the memories that you have in your work life. And so they call it having an innie and an outie. You have your in your innie, your in work memories. You have that personality. And then you have an Audi, which is your, your personal life. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so the grief over the loss of his wife is what causes this main character to make this decision to practice, to get the severance procedure. And I think the whole show, I'm not going to spoil it for people because they, everyone needs to watch it because it is, a, it's a deep social commentary and incredibly compelling show, uh, and lots of great twists and turns and, you know, it's fun. It's mm -hmm. a fun show. Um, it, it, uh, it gets you to start to think about, um, the world as we know it from a productivity and workplace angle demands a kind of life from us that does not allow for our humanity to come to work with us, hmm. our full humanity. Mm -hmm. That's the social critique. But of course, it's also, we can't cut off. We can't actually practice severance like the show. Right. Mm -hmm. Even though in the show, it becomes it's not a great thing that they're doing that either. But, you know, we can't do that. We can't sever our personal lives. We can be professional. We can have boundaries, but we can't make a sever where mm -hmm. we won't think about it at all. And so this is it, to me. I think the show also kind of shows this conflict that the grieving body, which is, by the way, all of us now in a covid post covid reality or pre post covid reality, whatever hell you want to think about it. Mm -hmm. um, all of us are in that grief mode and all of us are trying to do that internal work of severance when we show up at work every single day yeah. or anyway, even if we're tired, try to go to the grocery store. And, and it's also I mean, show up physically. It's also the showing up physically too, which I realized, right? Like yeah. there yeah. was something easier about it for those of us who were able to work from home of not having to show up physically, you know, um, to, you know, you had to be on screen and stuff, but like, there's a way that grief affects how your routine in the morning, how you dress, yeah. how you get dressed, how you care for yourself. And when you actually have to like show up physically in the world again, you're like, gosh, this is so exhausting. It is. You're, showing, it is. you're, you're fighting the, the grief, right? You're fighting this, yeah, your your body is telling you stay at home, stay under these covers, do nothing, tend to yourself, mm -hmm. and you're having to fight that all morning long just to get yourself in the car and out the yeah. door. And that, and then you start thinking about people with kids, people who are caregivers, people who have these really high stress jobs, pastors. Um, you know, I think it's like there's a lot. There's yeah. a lot on the a lot on folks all the time and and I don't think we're tending enough to each other's grief. You know, it's kind of like that old saying, I think it's sometimes cliche. It's like just, you know, wh whoever you encounter, just remember they're, you know, they're dealing with a battle that you don't understand. Behind mm -hmm. every set of eyes is a battle you don't understand. And so treat people kindly. Um, 
And I do think a little kindness and maybe this is what grace really means in this world that we're living in is to, you know, like Brene Brown says, like, imagine, assume everybody is trying their best, right? It doesn't mean you have to just let them do whatever to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can no. have boundaries. You can't do that. But assume people are trying their best and, you know, act accordingly, you know. And, and you know, I think there's something to that and there's something – I don't believe in niceness. I don't think that's commanded by the gospel, but I do think kindness is different than niceness. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And, yeah. and also great- the the fighting the urge to be productive with your grief. So you talked about being productive in spite of the grief, right? Like going to work and stuff. But then there's this urge to like, well, I have to do something with my grief. Um whether it's I have, if you're creative, you have to create something. You have to write a song. You gotta you gotta do something with it to make it feel like it's useful. Yeah. Um, and you don't really have to. <laughs> you just you no. just go through it. Just go. You through don't. It. Well, my and I think we should go kind of circle right back around to the neoliberal moment that we're in, where, um, you know, in this moment of neoliberalism, everybody wants you to think that a personal responsibility solution is the answer to the systemic problems that are killing us all. Mm-hmm. And and so my friend Eric Minton, who is a family therapist, has written this great new book called "It It's Not You, It's Everything." Mm-hmm. And I love that. Um, and I, it's also like a song that I love from one of my favorite artists, Michael Kiwanuka, who's a British uh, soul singer, who's got a song called "You're Not the Problem, You Ain't the Problem." Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love that song because it's like, no, no, it's it's not me, mm-hmm. you know. It's everything that's on us at the same time. And we keep trying to say, well, if you just meditate more, hell no. Meditation is not going to make systemic racism go away. No. You know, you can, you should meditate. Yeah. Don't imagine that your meditation is going to solve the social pressure that's pushing down on you. That is not that you have to get involved in collective action and social justice and organizing. Uh, It's the same is true of the neoliberal capitalism and the pressure that it puts on families and individuals and churches, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It's not you. It's everything, you know, so take a, get some water, right? Yeah. Get a nap, get a nap, take a nap, go to sleep for a little bit. (laughs) Well, this was a fruitful conversation. I hope it, it was helpful for anybody who's listening. Um, to go through this process and remind us the name of the book again, Ben, that. Yeah. The book is uh, the myth of closure by Pauline boss. Mm-hmm. And the, the album is Mr. Morale and the high steppers by Kendrick Lamar. Mm-hmm. And uh, the TV show is on Apple television. It's uh, entitled severance. Okay. Good, good, good stuff. <laughs> All right. Y'all we'll see you for another episode next week. Uh, until right. then, take care of your grief. See you later. Friends, that was our episode this week. As always, please email your questions and your suggestions to Reverend Mia McLean at mmcclain at myersparkbaptist.org. Until next time, take care. This is Sacred Justice.